All right, well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, it's great to see you. <laughs> Let's open up our Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And just to let you know, later on in the sermon, uh, we'll go back to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, so 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, we'll start out with, and then we'll go back eventually uh, to Deuteronomy 17 uh, together. Over the last number of weeks, we've been going through the covenants, God's covenant commitment with his people. And we've seen God's covenant with Adam. We've seen God's covenant with uh, Noah. We've seen God's covenant with Abraham. We've seen God's covenant with Moses. And this morning, we are going to see God's covenant with David. And that's what I'm going to read for us this morning. But before I read, let's pray. Ask the Lord's help. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. I pray that as we read it uh, this morning and as we hear of your great covenant with David, help us to see you. Help us to see your goodness. Help us behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Give us hearts to hear. Give us attention this morning. Oh, Lord, our focus and attention this week has been on so many other things. Lord, I pray, help us, help us focus on you in your name. Amen. So I'm going to read to you God's covenant with David. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 down to verse 13. God's covenant with David. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar made of wood, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But... That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have, I, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, from, the, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies and befo from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of, of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down in your father, with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is God's covenant with David. God comes to David and says, David, I don't need you to build me a house. I didn't ask you for that. I don't need you to build me a house. Do you know what I'm going to do for you, David? David, I am going to build for you a house. If anyone is going to be the builder in this story, David, it's not going to be you. I am going to build you a house. And God makes this promise to David, and the promise that it hangs on is verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These verses, we won't go through them verse by verse like we normally do when we're going through books. What I want you to see is a kind of a theme in these verses. And verse 13, when I read that verse, it, it, it brings a word to mind. And the word that it brings to mind for me is the word anticipation. This chapter is full of anticipation. It's full of this longing and waiting and expecting of who? A king. One that is going to have a throne forever. This verse, verse 13, has anticipation in it. And that's what I want us to think this morning. Our anticipation. Where would we be, you and me, without anticipation in our lives? Do you know how most of us manage to get through this week? Most of us manage to get through our work week this week because we were anticipating something. Friday is coming. The only thing that got most of us through this week is the fact that Friday is coming. There is anticipation in our lives, and that anticipation drives us, enables us to live our lives better. Where would we be without that anticipation? Some of us, we have very young children that keep us up all night. And sometimes it's a real struggle to get in here this morning. And if you got in here this morning, well done. But I know that feeling. There is that feeling of anticipation with them that one day, Lord, I hope they get older. One day, Lord, I hope they will sleep a night. It is that anticipation that keeps you going. I experienced that same level of anticipation in college. One day, these exams are going to be over. One day, these papers are going to be over. And then I went to college again for some reason. But anyway, there's that anticipation that one day, this will be over. One day, it will be done. I will no longer have to do these exams again. Anticipation. Where would we be without it? And so this verse, this chapter, calls us to be a people of anticipation. And the first thing that we should anticipate as God's people 
is we should anticipate, long for, expect our king, our coming king. Because verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is this reality that there is a king and a kingdom coming that will be forever. And God wants us as his people to anticipate that. In fact, the scripture, the Bible is full of this anticipation, this anticipation for a king. And it begins at the very start of the Bible. It begins with the first king in the Bible. And most of us look at this king and we think he's not really a king because it doesn't seem to explicitly say that he is a king. But, but the text seems to be clear. The first king in the Bible is King Adam. And the first covenant in the Bible was with King Adam. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says these key words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What did God say to Adam? You are going to have dominion. What does that mean? You're going to have rule. You're going to have reign. I want you to be my king on this earth. And how did King Adam do? King Adam failed. And so that builds in us what? That builds in us more anticipation for another king that would come, that would be faithful. And so that leads us to the covenant with Abraham. Because in the covenant with Abraham, let me remind you, I'm reminding you for my sake more than for yours, I want you to remember something from this series. So I'm going to remind you of something in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were four key chapters. The first key chapter was Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, you have the promise of land and nation and blessing. That's God's covenant promise. And then in chapter 15, you have the picture of that promise where God shows him all the stars in the sky and did that whole blood, you know, remember that blood sacrifice that they had to walk through, that, that picture of the covenant promise he gives to him in chapter 15. And then in chapter 17, you have this picture of a sign. And the sign was the sign of circumcision in the covenant. And then in chapter 22, I hope, <laughs> chapter 22 was the sacrifice. All of this showing God's covenant with Abraham. Now there's something that we miss, that we tend to miss in the covenant with Abraham. And what we tend to miss is this promise, this anticipation of a king. Genesis 17 tucked away in this covenant with Abraham it says this, God says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So, so God not only says, I'm going to make you into a nation, but what, does na what do nations need? They need rulers. They need those who are going to reign. And what God promises is kings are going to come from you. So we see this picture of kings in Adam, we see this picture of kings in Abraham, and we also see this build-up of anticipation of kings coming through who? Through Judah. When Jacob is blessing his family 
at the end in Genesis chapter 49, he comes to bless Judah, and he says these words to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so again, there is this anticipation built in the passage that through the line of Judah, there would come a king. King Adam failed. King Abraham failed. King Judah failed. And all of it builds to this expectation that David is going to do it all. And David is, comes, and David is, is made king, and David is given then this promise that not only are you going to be king, but back in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The anticipation of a king. We as God's people need to be anticipating, expecting, and longing for a king. But not only a king, a priest king. And I want you to stay with me because this is really, really important because many of us don't see it. We not only need a king, we need in our lives a priest king. Now, who is the first priest king in the Bible? Many of us don't see it. But when we look at the scripture, it seems clear that the first priest king was Adam. Adam was the first priest king. How was Adam the first priest king? Well, when you take Adam and you compare Adam to the priests, you will realize that there's a lot of similarities between Adam and the priests. How so? Adam and the priests, they have the same boss, right? Adam and the priests, they have the same boss. When Adam was in the garden and he was working in the garden, who was he working in front of? God. God's presence was always there when he was working in the garden. When the priests, when they worked in the tabernacle, that is the tent of, of God's meeting, when the priests worked in the tabernacle, who was their boss? Who was overseeing that work? It was God. God's presence was there in the tabernacle. They had the same boss. And they also did the same type of work. In the garden, in Genesis chapter 2, what was Adam called to do? Adam was called with these two verbs to work and to keep the garden and to mediate blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That was Adam's job. What was the priest's job in the tabernacle? The priest's job were the two same verbs, to work and to keep the tabernacle, and to mediate God's blessing to people. Same boss, same job, same type of work, and same type of place of work. The Garden of Eden, where Adam, this king priest, worked, could only be entered into from the east. And it was a place that was guarded by the cherubim, those winged and glorious creatures. And inside the garden, what was there? There was the tree of life. 
So it is with the tabernacle. It was the same type of place of worship. The tabernacle could only be entered into by what? By the east. It was guarded by who? It was guarded by the cherubim, those winged creatures. And what did it house inside the tabernacle? There was that lampstand, that tree lampstand, which signified the tree of life. Adam was a king priest, and Adam was a king priest who failed. And then the, the narrative moves on to this weird character who meets Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 14, there's this guy called Melchizedek who meets Abraham. And Melchizedek does what priest kings do. They mediate blessing. And so he was mediating blessing over to Abraham. And it says this of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. He was a king, and he was a priest king, and we only get this like shadow of him in the Scripture, and then he disappears, and then he reappears again in Psalm 110, and reappears again in Hebrews. This picture of a priest king. And then in God's covenant with Moses and God's people in Exodus, God calls them, God makes the nation, God calls the nation, and God asks the nation to be a holy nation. And he says to them this thing. In Exodus 19, he says to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There to be the new king priests. And guess what happened to them? They failed. And so all of this builds up in the account and leads and points us not only to a new king in David, but a new priest king in David, because that, who da that is who David is. He is a new priest king. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is appointed king. And then David defeats the Philistines with his army. And then do you know what David does? David then, with the army, brings the Ark of the Covenant. That is a sign of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant brings it back to God's people. And as he brings it back to God's people, I want you to see David's response. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. They bring the Ark of the Covenant back and look at David's response. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. But this time he was wearing clothes. What was he wearing? And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. Why is David wearing this ephod? Because that is what the priests wore. It was this apron that the priests wore. It's like the Bible is picturing to us, here's the priest king. Here's the one you've been longing for. 
Here's the one you've been waiting for. Except what was wrong with David? David also failed. David slept with another man's wife and killed the man. And so what this does in Scripture is it builds in us this anticipation, this longing for a new king. And this longing and anticipation, not just for a new king, but for a new priest king. And of course, all that builds to the time where there's this blind guy by the name of Bartimaeus. I love Bartimaeus. I don't know if you've thought about Bartimaeus recently. But Bartimaeus was there. He was on the streets. He was sitting. He was blind. Couldn't see a thing. That's what blind means. Could not see a thing. And then in the streets of Jericho, Jesus is walking. Jesus is walking down the streets of Jericho, and blind Bartimaeus, he stands up, and he says these words, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd say to Bartimaeus, get down, Bartimaeus. They rebuke him. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. You don't know what you're talking about. And Bartimaeus gets up again, and he shouts, son of David, have mercy on me. And the irony of all that is the blind man is the only one who can see that the king has come, that the one in the line of David has come, that the one that we've all been longing for, he has finally arrived. And Jesus says to him, go, your sins are forgiven, your faith has made you well. Jesus, the king that we are all longing for, and not just any king, he is the priest king, where all the priests failed. Jesus, he succeeded. The priests had one thing wrong with them. All of them sinned. But Jesus, he is entirely different. We can come to Jesus because he is our priest king. In Hebrews chapter 4, speaks of these familiar words of our priest king. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is our great king and priest. And the Bible is screaming it throughout the pages. And the Bible is screaming it throughout this covenant with David. There is coming one whose kingdom is going to last forever. And so what should we as God's people do? We should anticipate our king, the Lord Jesus, our priest king, the Lord Jesus. I want us to think about anticipation for a second because I think this is really important for us as God's people to have, anticipation. What's one of the things that we are longing for right now? 
some of us. I know certainly the children. One of the things that we are anticipating and longing for right now is Christmas. Aren't we? I'm going to be the first to mention it, okay? Christmas. The countdown is on. And I actually went to, I went to a shop the other day, and they started putting up the direct decorations. And it reminded me of when I used to work in this juice bar in Maham Point. And the songs, they started in like late October, early November. And I was just riddled with these really annoying Christmas songs. But some of us, we have this anticipation for Christmas, don't we? That desire that, that Christmas is coming, I'm going to be with family, I'm going to be with friends, I'm going to have presents, all that kind of stuff. We're, we're anticipating Christmas. Even one of, even one of my, my favorite Christmas ads, I'll let you in on my favorite Christmas ad. Everybody has a famous Christmas ad. My, my, my most favorite Christmas ad is obviously a Coca-Cola ad. It's that one with the Coca-Cola trucks. You know that one? Holidays are coming, holidays are coming. Do you know that one? You know, the trucks are coming, holidays are coming. It's a genius ad. Because even in the song, even in the way the ad goes, it's building the anticipation, isn't it? Holidays are coming. It's genius. Absolute genius. Building our anticipation. Now I want you to think how anticipation is linked with our motivation. Here's what I mean. One of the things that enables us to work well before Christmas comes is the fact that Christmas is coming. So our anticipation affects our motivation. How I'm going to work now because I know holidays are coming, because I know that one day this is going to stop, I have motivation to keep going because this is going to stop one day. So it is for the Christian life. I believe... One of our problems with Christian motivation is the fact that we are lacking in our Christ Christian anticipation. Are you lacking in your motivation for Jesus right now? I want you to answer that honestly. Are you struggling with your motivation to follow Jesus now? Are you struggling with your motivation to pray to Jesus? Are you struggling with your motivation to read God's Word? Are you struggling at times? Just be honest with yourself. Are you struggling at times with your motivation to even come and be here with God's people and to worship Him now? Are you struggling with that motivation? I have a solution for you, I think. You need to grow in your anticipation for Jesus. Our King, He is coming back again. And if our King is coming back again, that affects every way that we live our lives. If He is going to return, that means we watch how we live. If He is going to return, that means we watch how we behave. We as God's people should be those who expect, long for, and anticipate the coming of our priest king. Do you know I was talking with one of the children in this church recently? One of the children. One of the children in primary school in this church. 
And I won't say the question that they asked me, but I'll just say the way that they asked the question, how they began the question. The primary school person came to me and said, Shane, I've been reading Revelation. And Shane, which instilled in me a great panic, I'm like, what? I'm not going to have the answer for this question. I've been reading Revelation, and here's my question. It's wonderful to hear, isn't it? Primary school child, reading Revelation. Do you know, it's a book that we often ignore. We don't read it because, honestly, we don't have a clue what's going on in some ways. One day, one day, I will preach through Revelation. It's going to happen one day. And many of you will agree with me and many of you will disagree, but whatever. But when I preach it, It's going to be one thing I can guarantee you I will say. He is coming back again. He's coming back again. And, and guess what? He's already won. It's done. We're playing in a match. We're playing in a game that we've already won. Because of Jesus. And that's the whole message of the book. It builds in us this anticipation. So I'd encourage you, don't be afraid of revelation. Don't ignore it in your readings. Read it and have this big picture expectation that my king, he is coming back again. Read it with that. Anticipate the coming of the king. Anticipate the coming of the priest king. And the last thing I'll say to you is this. Anticipate the coming of of the better king. Because that's who Jesus is. He's absolutely the better king. All the kings, they failed. King Adam failed. Those who came down the line of Adam failed. The priest kings, they failed. It came to David, he failed. And when you look at this covenant, there is also, in this promise, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Look at these verses, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. The near fulfillment, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So the near fulfillment is this. David... Through your line, you're not going to build me a house, but through your line, there's coming a king who's going to build me a house, a physical house. And that king, he will have iniquity. In other words, that king will build a house and that king will have sin. Who is that king? The near fulfillment of that promise is King Solomon. King Solomon. What a wise king. But King Solomon, not a perfect king. Now, I told you we were going to turn back to Deuteronomy 17. 
And I want us to turn back there because in Deuteronomy 17, you have what's called the king's law. So I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy 17. It's the last place we'll turn this morning. Deuteronomy 17. And as we read Deuteronomy 17, I want you to ask the question, how did Solomon do with the king's law in Deuteronomy 17? How did Solomon do? Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is the king's law. How did King Solomon do with the king's law? When you come to the land, chapter 17, verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are before me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, listen to what he must not do, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold." Now, that's the king's law. Now think of the king's law and Solomon. Solomon, not many horses. How many horses did Solomon have? 40,000 horses. With 70,000 horsemen. Failed the king's law. Wives. Not many wives, Solomon. Not many wives. How many wives does Solomon have? 700 wives and 300 concubines. How is he doing with the king's law? Failed. Okay, not to have many riches. How rich was Solomon? He was one of the richest kings we've ever seen on this planet. So how is King Solomon doing? Very, very badly. And one of the reasons he is doing very, very badly is because he must have neglected what the king's law says next. Verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book of this law, approved, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he may learn that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So here's what King Solomon was supposed to do. King Solomon was to take the law and write down, handwrite down his own copy of the entire law so that he would memorize it and so that he would do it. And so he writes down possibly this whole law and horses, he gets them all. Wives, he gets them all. Riches, he gets them all. And what does that build in us? It builds in us should build in us. There's got to be a better king than this guy Solomon, because he fails at every point. There's got to be a better king than David, and there's got to be a better king than Solomon. There's got to be a better king than the kings that were produced from them, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. How did all those kings do in all the history of God's people? All of those kings, pretty much, by and large, they failed. 
They failed to keep God's law. And what that builds in us time and time again as you read the storyline of Scripture, it builds in us this anticipation for a better king. And that brings us to the wilderness, where Jesus comes into the wilderness, and Jesus, he is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He is tempted three times in the wilderness by Satan. Remember these temptations. Temptation number one, Satan tempted Jesus and said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. And what did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond? Jesus responded with the Word of God. Jesus responded with Scripture, but He didn't just respond with any old Scripture. What Scripture did Jesus respond with? He responded with Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then comes the second temptation. Satan, Satan took Jesus onto the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, throw yourself off. The angels will catch you. And Jesus responded to him with Scripture, but not with any old Scripture. Jesus responded to him with Deuteronomy. Who reads Deuteronomy? Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he is tempted for the third time. And in this temptation, Satan comes and he shows him all of the kingdoms and says, they can be yours if you would worship me. And Jesus responds with Scripture, but not just any old Scripture. Guess what Scripture he responds with? You can say it. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus is the better king who knows the law, who memorizes the law, who fulfills the law, and who uses the law of Deuteronomy to defeat Satan. Jesus is the better king that we, we long for. So here's my question. The first has to be this. Is Jesus your king? Have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? Have you said to King Jesus, I'm sick of ruling my life. I fail at it again and again. I've sinned in my life, and I need you. Have you trusted in Jesus as king? I hope many of us in this room have. But if you have, could I ask you another question? Is Jesus king in your life? When, when you look at your life, is Jesus really king there? Is that how it works in your life? When you look at your home, is Jesus king in your home? You know, I think in our homes, there's a battle for kingship in our homes. There is. I want my kingdom. I want my kingdom. I want my rule. I want my reign. There's a battle for kingship in your home. There's one thing that wants king, kingship in your home. 
emotions. Emotions, they want to rule your home. That, that we would make decisions on the basis of our emotions. If I'm sad, I'll make this decision. If I'm happy, I'll make this decision. If I'm angry, I will make this decision. No, there is only one king in your home. It's not your emotions. The king in your home is King Jesus. He rules, he reigns, and you make your decisions on the basis of what King Jesus says. Is King Jesus ruling in your home? Do you know who else can rule in your home? Not just your emotions, but children can rule in your home. That we make all our decisions, all our plans, everything that we have on the basis of, of the feelings of our children, on the way our children are behaving, and all of this. The children are not the king. I don't care what this world says. They should not be in charge. King Jesus is in charge. And if King Jesus is in charge, then we follow him. So in our homes, we need to remind our children, you are not in charge. Jesus is. We follow him in this home. He rules, he reigns. He reigns over mommy, he reigns over daddy, he reigns in this home. And we are going to honor him. Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the priest king. Jesus is the better king. And Jesus is the one we should serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this covenant with David, the covenant that builds our anticipation for a better king, a king who will reign forever, a king who is coming back again. I pray, Lord, that you'll build in us that anticipation for that day when you come back again. And may that motivate us to live our lives for you each day, Remind us that in our homes, whether we are on our own or with a roommate or in our family, remind us that Jesus is King. In your name, I pray these things. Amen. We're going to sing uh, together, stand and sing, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. So let's focus on him.